And hello there, I'm Peter Mansbridge. This is The Bridge, and if I sound excited today, I am excited because this is a very special edition of The Bridge. As I warned you on the very first day, I was hoping during the campaign that there'll be a couple of days when we'll do special broadcasts, and one of them would be about polling. I'm always talking about polling. I'm not a big fan about polling because I have concerns, and yet I always end up talking about it. So the best way to deal with that is to actually do a program on polling and put out these concerns and some of your concerns and get them answered by a couple of the best pollsters in the country. And that's what we've got on tonight's special edition of The Bridge. Okay, here we go. As promised, two of the country's top pollsters talking about polling. That's what we're going to try and do here for the next little while. Who have we got? We've got Shachi Curl, Executive Director of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi's here in Toronto, normally in Vancouver. So we're lucky to have you here for a couple of days. Right? Hello. Yes, hello. And David Hurley, political consultant, principal partner, polling and research firm Gandalf Group, but best known. As an insider. Well, as an insider, from the, uh, <laughs> that's true, but best known really these days as hosting the Hurley Burley. Thank you very much. Which is a fun uh, podcast. You've never asked me podcast. out of your podcast. You've never asked me. Well, well I've I'm in the best I of have, company then. I have yeah. begged you. Yeah. He keeps saying, uh, you know, he'll tell you, uh, got to have you on the program. Yeah. That's the last you'll hear about it. It's like when a guy says, I'll call you. I get it. I get it. Anyway, the beauty of the Hurley Burley is it was one of the original Canadian political podcast um and it's become extremely popular through the uh, the election campaign um with david and scott reed and jenny byrne yeah um who ran a lot of harper stuff yeah and so the group of them are, are and whom uh, i blame for ford as well and you blame for ford <laughs> but she left ford right she did they, yeah they, they won and then she uh, she left shortly after winning after yes. uh, getting a, a job in government. Anyway, enough about the Hurley Burley. <laughs> this is the bridge. And the reason I want to do this is because a lot of people are still, including myself, after years of covering polling and talking about polling, I'm still confused about a lot of things that happen in polling. So I, I think uh, this is a, a good opportunity uh, to discuss it and also to have two pollsters Together in the same room, which doesn't happen often. No, we're not a collegial group. No. <laughs> no, I'll say that. I mean, pollsters tend to sort of like talk privately and kind of raise concerns about other pollsters. Oh, no, now, now we've, many of them have just taken to calling each other out on Twitter and, say, and, and right. in public and saying yeah. terrible things and... You know, it's people, well. Don't hold back now. People, Everybody's people, wrong but me. People <laughs> tend to have this idea that it's like it's a sector, it's an industry. Okay, it's not a regulated industry. You don't go to school to become a pollster. You don't write an exam to call yourself a pollster. And so, as a result, the so-called sector does behave a little bit like the used car industry. And you've got the pickup truck guys saying, "Well, you can't trust electric cars; they're no good." And you've got the electric people going, "We're on the cusp and the cutting edge of polling, and ours is the best." And this is really the battle that you have over methodology in this country. But I know you're going to ask questions, and then we're going to get into all of this well, uh, we're going to start on on kind of that vein in the sense of what's the most misunderstood thing about polling 
all of the things. The fact well, that a lot of what you just mentioned, <laughs> yeah. but but generally, for uh, you know, for for people out there, including journalists, what's the most misunderstood thing about polling, David? Um, the most misunderstood thing about polling is that it is not significantly used to measure the current state of public opinion, but to understand how to change the current state of public opinion. And that's how the political parties use it. That's how the corporate world or the labor movement or anybody that commissions polling, nobody does it because they want to know what people think right now. They do it because they want to change what people think. And that's what polling does. So when the, the media uses polling the way the media uses it, that's not the way the real people who um, populate the polling industry in terms of its use use it. No, no, no. If you're, uh, if you're inside a political party and you're getting your daily tracking results, the uh, top-line number will be dispensed with in two minutes of a 25-, 30-minute presentation. It's mostly about what are people thinking about, what are they caring about, what do they think about my candidate, what do they think about the other candidate, who's dominating this race right now, who's got the frame for this race. That's what polling is telling you. The ins- that's what the difference between a one-question survey that people get through the media and the kind of detailed information that the parties are working with. Shanchi? Well, I would agree and I would disagree. I think David's absolutely right. That is how... The commercial side and sort of the the dark art side, not to ascribe, you know, but but really sort of the commercial effective side, what is going on behind the curtain. I think, I would like to think that when journalists try to look at polling numbers, they are trying to, to an extent, understand a snapshot in time. The work that I do at the Institute, which is a not-for-profit organization, so we don't do that kind of client work, is trying to understand both things, both the, that high level top line and also where is the soft underbelly of persuadable votes and what are the political parties going to be doing to try to sway it? So I think it's both. But I think that the most misunderstood thing about polling is people use it like some sort of bloody crystal ball to predict the future. And yes, there are trends that you can pick up off of it. There are signals in that noise. But at the end of the day, I I went to go give a talk and someone's like, so should I check my lottery numbers against what you're going to tell me? And I'm like, no, jerk, you shouldn't. I'm telling you what the data says today. Depending on how long the trend line goes, I can tell you what they've been thinking over the last 30 years. And is this a departure? Is this more of the same? Is it a big deal? Is it a little deal? But this idea that we can somehow tell you exactly what's going to happen on election night as a, po- as, as, uh, a proof point of what's coming out of the field today, that I think is one of the biggest, biggest misconceptions about polling. So can I just put a nuance on what you were saying there, yeah. which is, yeah, you cannot use polling to predict what's going to happen any distance out because there's intervening events you can't predict. But one of the amazing things about research that people don't understand is it does tell you quite definitively, if you say this message to this group of people, they will react that way. Yeah, you are right right about that. Right. And so that's what parties know. And that's what all professional communicators who have access to research know. 
is if I say this message with these words and this intonation to this segment of the population, they will react to that in this way. And there's been plenty of examples of that even on this, uh, even in this election, even on this campaign trail. If you look at the trade-off between energy and the environment, you actually see that Canadians don't want either or, they want both and, and, they, and yet two things happen. One, the one party that tries a both-and approach ends up getting punched from both sides by, by their political opponents for being too soft on pipelines or too too soft on climate action. Or you end up with, with what I think are missed opportunities. The, the screaming finding on, on that pipeline versus climate action debate is if the Conservatives had just moved a little bit more towards the centre and had more to say on the climate file, I think you'd be looking at a very different campaign dynamic today. I just wonder how much pollsters feed this belief of being predictive. I think that they you're do. you're left with the impression when you hear a pollster explaining their latest numbers that in fact they are predicting they don't they don't necessarily say that sometimes they they get awfully close to saying it but i think it's understandable why a lot of people would think those numbers are being predictive so david hurt feelings alert a lot of this is the domain again the industry or many of the main players out there tend to be men over the age of 50 who like to talk about how much what? they what? know so, and you combine that with the commercial aspect of it. You go take a meeting with a big swinging client. I can tell you what's going to happen. This gentleman, he's, his, the name of his company has been the Gandalf Group, right? It's all magic. <laughs> I know the spells and the secrets. Thou shalt think, not pass. <laughs> I, think, I think she's got you on that one. So, of course, this is so that bleeds from the conversation with the client into the conversation into the public square into the conversation with the journalist and as an ex-journalist and a broadcaster i get it they don't understand math math is hard half the time they don't know what the hell they're talking about when they're reporting polls especially the young ones and i talk to newsrooms every time i see a poll egregiously wrongly reported on i will call their news director and say I will come and talk to your people and give them polling 101 well, basics. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of that. And and they're all like, nobody has time for that. And I'm like, well, that's great. They rarely talk, as they should always mention, when it was done. Nobody talks about that. Rarely mention margin of error. Yeah. And certainly don't mention margin of error when they keep going down in a, you know, a national poll and they say, but in the province and in this particular region, they keep going down and down as the margin of error is going up and up. You rarely see that. The pollsters mention it in the tiniest of print in their, in in their copies. It's not that tiny. It's 12 point When you were doing the national. We always mentioned all of these things. Did you try to make your story sound as authoritative as possible, or did you try to make sure that the viewers knew all of the weaknesses in the story you were presenting, all the things you didn't know, all the things that your reporter had been unable to uncover? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think that is what drives the lack of transparency, and I think it is a lack of... Oh, no, your clients are expecting some level of authoritativeness from you. They want to know. They're spending a lot of money. Yeah, your clients on are. This, and Absolutely. they want to know how are we doing? Yeah. Right? right? So you are you are 
needing to tell them literally how you're doing. It doesn't mean that you ever say, this is how it's going to be three weeks from now necessarily, yeah. but this is the trend line and this is what we're expecting. And But that is the narrative and that is the tone or the attitude that then bleeds into, I think, what is a different beast around the public and the transparent reporting of polling where you should say, you know what? Do not try to take this sub-base of 100 people in one province that's really teeny tiny and and start dividing it up into regions and cities and, and pretend like you have an accurate no, look the media at what's have going a on. The media have a responsibility here. The pollsters are giving them a lot of information. They're giving them the general qualifiers. And I still say, and there's lots of, I mean, you're out there doing your thing, trying yeah. to educate people about polling. David Coletto's out there doing his thing, trying to educate people about polling. And the other day, I saw a tweet from iPolitics mm. that said that the whole complexion of the race had changed because the liberals had tumbled Tumbled two points. By near, no, no, two? by nearly a full percentage yeah. point. Oh, nearly that is, a full that is, percentage yeah. point. That stuff drives right? me. And that's not from the pollster. Crazy. That's a journalist yeah. trying to torque a story. No, and and some of the the journalism around. I mentioned this last week on the bridge. That's the name of this podcast. Um, I mentioned last week how I saw an ad run by one news organization about the poll they had commissioned, where the headline in the ad was. If the vote was to be held tomorrow, this would be the result. And yeah. ran the result. And this was a poll that was five days old, or at least the beginning of it had been yeah. five days ago. And that's just, like, it's unforgivable. Um, I, you know, when you asked me about what I did on the national, when it came to polls, I was very, you know, I was kind of reluctant on polls. I, you know, I've always, you know, always reported them to some degree, but I, I was always kind of reluctant because of, changing nature of polling and how it's being done, di different methodologies and the questions that are raised about that. One thing I started doing in the early 90s, and I think we were the first ones to do it, um, which was to collect all the polls that were done and kind of put them all together and average them out. And once a week we'd say, this is kind of the average of all the polls that are out there. And then we kind of backed away from that because we started to have doubts about it because there were different methodologies involved. And now this sort of aggregating of polls has become a thing. Some people do it. The CBC does it. Yeah. And, and yeah. they say they're very careful about mm. this issue, about, you know, differing uh, methodologies. But I still worry about that. I, I don't, it's like comparing apples and oranges and mixing them all in together as if they were all one. Well, and so that was a big part of the problem with the 2016 U.S. election was the heavy, heavy reliance on aggregators. And then all of a sudden the aggregators had it wrong. So pollsters had it wrong and the polling industry had it wrong. And you just talked about apples and bananas. I have likened it when I talk about this to aggregation as the art or the 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 or, or the failure of smoothie making, where you're not just throwing in different methodologies, but you're also dealing in the fact that sometimes the data might be old, so it smells a little funky, or maybe you don't have the banana from that province or state. So rather than tell the consumer, look, there again are some some gaps in what this data and information contains, you just throw throwing it in there, pouring it out and saying, this is the right thing. You're not talking about the fact that sampling errors are compounded every time you aggregate it compounds and compounds and compounds. So it's a tool for understanding what a bunch of pollsters are talking about. But really, if you're a polling consumer, whether you are a paying client or whether you are a journalist or whether you're someone who just 
in, if you're a political junkie and you're into this, you've got to arm yourself with a bunch of information and the knowledge to ask questions. So you talked about methodology. That's one thing. And we know that certain methodologies are, are better suited to certain kinds of polling than others. Uh, a phone poll may be much better suited to doing a neighborhood canvas of 300 people in a very tight environment. But Gallup had problems with landline calling in 2012 because it skews older. And who the hell has a, a landline anymore anyway if you're under the age of 35? So there's big gaps and problems there. Well, but online people, call, has, people call cell phones, right? Yeah, but online has its issues. I'm saying that, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who are saying that one methodology continues to be a gold standard. I and I, is, I, I, I well, I, I disagree. I disagree on that. I think what you actually need to do is look at the track record of the polling organization involved. Are they generally getting it right? Or are they generally getting it wrong? That's one thing to arm yourself with. Who paid for the poll? What were the questions asked? You know, we never talk about questionnaires. We never right. actually talk yes, about there are the add questions. There are add-ons. You could right? be also talking about uh, what soap you use, right? As along with who you're going to vote for yep. or which party do you vote for. What was the order of the questionnaire? Something that might have been more relevant and might have, yeah. something that might have been more relevant and might have led you to a different answer yes. than you might have given had you not been asked those questions You know, were you just asked a long series of questions about, about healthcare or border security? Yeah. And how do you feel about the way your government's doing? And by the way, how are you going to vote? Right. You know, those are the types of things that affect a question and affect the outcome. What about in terms of, uh, I know you two were kind of screaming back and forth at each other on this issue of how you actually get uh, the person polls views. I mean, when polling started, 1840 or whenever it was, it, it was kind of like word of mouth and a very simple uh, poll. But when George Gallup, I guess, developed it more into the uh, mid-1900s, initially it was door-to-door, mm -hmm. and then it was landline phone, mm -hmm. and then it became, well, we better add cell phones too because, you know, uh, an increasing number using cell phones, and now there's an, uh, there's a, an increasing uh, number of pollsters who are doing things online. Um, what, in a basic way, what are the differences here and how can they impact the result? Well, I mean, do you want to start at the beginning? I'm going to start and you are going to take issue with me, but I'm, I, I'm going to start. I think uh, uh, up, to, up to the online evolution, all of the uh, changes in, had been to make it more accurate. And when we went from phones to online, it wasn't because it was more accurate. It was because it was more convenient and cheaper. It was cheaper, yes. Cheaper. And so it isn't more accurate. In fact, the big problem with online, although in most cases they seem to be accurate, although it's fair to say, by the way, for the polling industry, that outside of elections, we have no accountability whatsoever because there's no benchmark. It's only elections where mm -hmm. anybody gets to know whether we were accurate or not. That's why elections <laughs> are client, so important in this world. Some client hires me, and I go off and tell them, your reputation, your support, you, people have 54% of the people have a favorable opinion of you. Who's to say I'm wrong or right? There's no other method of knowing. So only in elections do these things get tested. Right. And I would say that online polls are in the ballpark. Okay? They're they in the, are in the ballpark. They are. They are in, they are in the ballpark. And if ballpark's all you care about, and for most commercial use, it is, then you're saving a lot of money, and it's pretty good. If you need to call this thing within one or two percentage points, you better be doing it by phone. Hmm. So, so the parties, do they, do they do it by phone? 
Well, I always have. I've never done anything but phone. I can't speak for the other parties. Not, a, not all political li- parties. And David's have done, done Liberal phone. Party polling, both provincially and, and federally. So uh, the Institute, again, does not do any client work, does not work with any political parties, but. I have known over the years that, that uh, other uh, polling organizations and actors have, have used online polling. It hasn't been disastrous for them. I think the point earlier that I was trying to make is not that, that one is better than the other, so don't misunderstand me, but that I don't think any methodology can today in 2019 claim to be pristine or without problems. So phone polling has its issues with expense, with high refusal rates, where are you going to find people? Even if you do get them on their cell phone, do they really want to talk to you? Or worse, where it's... You better uh, keep it short. You know, with IV... Okay, so... And and, and, and that is inherently a problem. One, two questions? Ten minutes most. Well, if it's IVR, if it's a robocall... The robo, they won't talk to the robot for more than four or five questions. What's IVR? So that is is basically a robo-dialer, where you're talking to a robot. Press one for yes, press two for no. They're going to give up after a couple of questions. No. And my thing is... I talked to one the other day for ages. and, and, And for my sins, it's a good thing an IVR pollster isn't next to me. Because I would say, do you really know if it's a cat or a baby answering that question? But, you know, there's been an evolution to polling. And every time a new methodology is introduced, everyone loses their proverbial stuff. So when we switched from the days of door-to-door polling in Gallup to landline polling, people were like, well, how do we know the person on the other side of the line is telling the truth? And then that became the big question with the switch to online polling. Well, how do you know? Because you can't hear the truth in their voice. But wait a second. There's something yeah. different than that. Yeah. And you, I, I have a suspicion yeah. that you know far more about the academic theory here than I do. Okay. Okay. But there is a fundamental change from telephone calling to online polling, and that was the elimination of probability sampling. Absolutely. And the entire intellectual foundation of polling. And the reason one can expect it to be accurate is because it's based on probability sampling and that every person had an equal chance of being surveyed. Now that you're using opt-in online panels, that is gone. So you're just interviewing a lot of people. You're not necessarily interviewing a representative set of people. I Okay, so if it is done well, if it's done well, then I agree with you. The pure randomness is gone, 100%. You do not have pure, pure randomness. But I would also say you don't have pure randomness in online phoning either because it used to be that you would literally randomly pick phone numbers out of the phone book. The phone book don't exist anymore. And in terms of participation and having a home phone uh, and having somebody, once you get them on their home phone or their cell phone, wanting to talk to you, I would argue that 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 is not random anymore either. Um, When it comes to opt-in panels, and yes, full disclosure, that's the methodology that we use, it's not as though it's the same thing. And I think this is often fundamentally understood. It's not as though you're on a news site and it's a poll of the day Do you approve or disapprove of Justin Trudeau? You click on it. You don't know if that person is clicking from Kamloops or Kenya. What you do, if it is done well, 
If it is done properly with an online panel, you are dealing with tens and tens of thousands of Canadians who are, are found or recruited or encouraged, not just from the political junkie blogs, but from golf enthusiast magazine. Maybe they don't like anything to do with politics or from fashion or the new immigrant or Mary Clara, whatever it is. So you're trying to create a sample of mini Canada and you're still using the same controls for age, gender, income, uh, um, education, uh, were you born in this country, were you not? And then I think the other thing that people should remember is when we deploy that sample online, out of that panel of tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands, you're talking again to 1,500 to 2,000 people, and there is a degree of, a large degree of randomness in terms of who gets that. So it's not as though you opt in and all of a sudden, People think, well, I'm going to sign up for this organization and that way I'm going to influence the result of the poll that comes out. You can't do that because you can't actually predict what you're going to receive and be asked about. You want to pick up on that? No, I, I, I think I think it's fair what she said. I just um, and and I again, the results seem to be indicating that online polls are in the ballpark correct. So I don't mean to I don't mean to trash them here in that regard. And I use them a lot in the commercial sense. I and and. And the point that, you know, the response rates on telephone are so right. low now that it's almost impossible to believe that they are represented. Eight and ten, nine and ten refusals sometimes. Right. Is that fair? Or higher. Or higher. What do you mean eight or nine? Well, you make you make ten calls to get maybe one respondent. You talk Whoa. to ten people before you get one respondent. Yeah. Uh, one person that was willing to complete the survey. So you would think that that itself would be having some impact on the reliability and the of the surveys because there should be some difference between people that decide to answer them and people that don't decide to answer them. But on the other hand, it appears at the moment that that isn't the case, that the only thing, only way these people that answer surveys differ from people who don't is that they're prepared to answer surveys. It's but not the that they're lonely and just want somebody to talk to? The actual, t I mean, if you look at telephone surveys, random telephone surveys compared to election results, they're going to be within two or three percentage points, generally. I, I want to throw in some questions here from uh, from the Bridge listeners uh, who have sent a few, and I, uh, they've sent a lot. I, I'm just going to read a, a few here. And by the way, if you've sent uh, other questions aside from polling in the last little uh, few days, I will get to them eventually, but it won't be tonight. Okay, um, Pat Wharton. From Vernon, BC. This is the crux of her question. I'd like to know if you think that pollsters have become influencers. This is goes around this issue, this question that some people have, and some people have concluded in studies that pollsters actually push people towards a result with the results they're seeing. And that some people figure, I want to be with a winner. Is that conscious or unconscious? I assume it's conscious. Look, the act of measuring a thing. What's what's the theory called in science? Like Heisenberg? I'm getting it wrong. But there is there is a theory that talks about how the act of measuring a thing can change the thing itself. Mm. Wasn't Heisenberg the guy with the meth lab and breaking down? That's right. Okay, so it's <laughs> not that. <laughs> Somebody Google it quick. But the, the point, it's a real thing. Uh, clearly my strength is social science and not other science, but, 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 but the, the, fundamental, the, the fundamental point I'm trying to make is yes, the act of changing a thing, 
uh, or measuring a thing can change a thing. You hear a poll reported two days before an election that says, you know, the, the incumbent party is a handful of points behind the challenger. The, the incumbent party then... Uh, their, their strategists, their campaign managers then turn to all of their volunteers and all of their identified voters and go, look, we're at risk of losing this thing. You've got to get out and vote. And then you can see a surge of enthusiasm that puts that party over the top. And then the, the postscript to that is everyone says, well, the pollsters got it wrong. <laughs> right. But yes. I, so, so to, to the question, to the question, are individual pollsters out there influencing things? I, I don't think anybody... Uh, comes on an, uh, on a chat like this or goes out and talks to reporters or to their clients and says, I am actively trying to change the outcome of something. Although you might be trying to do that with a client. I get it. Um, but when you're reporting it, yes, people will have reactions and they will react accordingly. Is that nefarious or is just that human nature? Well, I don't, I, I'm not sure she's well, indicating or, or he that it's nefarious. It's just an interesting theory that... There's an influence there that goes beyond the influence you talked about at the beginning in terms of how you can influence a, a private company's decision-making based on, on, on what you're finding that people want. But in terms of this, are you influencing voters? Well, I think you, I think you are, and um, I think it is a discussion of whether that's good or bad. So uh, one way you could influence voters would be just the pure bandwagon effect. People like to be with a winner. Mm. People tend to be associated with something that is successful rather than something that is failing. So that if polls can, you know, continue to show somebody winning, and um, it can it can have both a bandwagon effect for their supporters, and it can have a very demotivating effect for the losing party supporters. You will recall a very very young Alan Gregg being dragged out by a very young Joe Clark in the nineteen eighty election to yeah. desperately try to contradict a late Gallup poll that they said was wrong and proved to be wrong by dramatically overstating what the liberal lead was. And they knew how dangerous that was late in the campaign mm -hmm. to be shown to be trailing badly. So I agree it has that kind of impact. It, has it was actually Bill Neville, the great Bill Neville. Is that right? Who dragged down. Is that right, Joe? Alan, who yeah. was the conservative pollster, yeah. and Bill Neville, who was uh, Joe Clark's Kind of, you know, I just remember poor Jerry Allen Bucks in a leather was... jacket sitting up there at yeah. a, at a, you know, a table and yeah. looking like yeah. he had a. No, it was. It was the worst possible position for any pollster to be yeah. in from any party, to have to go up there, you know, the night before, two nights before an election, and say, "Well, the latest polls, yeah, wrong." Especially if they knew it probably wasn't wrong. Well, it was wrong though because it said the Liberals were up by twenty points and they were only won by ten. So yeah, well, and the and the impact, <laughs> but the, the impact of that going side. back to the question is it then can have a very depressing effect. But on the impact supporters. I think people think is nefarious is the strategic voting part of it, and I think that's of where pollsters perform a valuable service for voters, because it is possible for a voter to say, my preferred choice is the NDP. But it is most important to me that another party not win. And so if the NDP can win my riding, I'll vote for the NDP. If the NDP can't win my riding, then I'm going to vote for somebody else who can win and beat those people I don't want to win. That's a legitimate voting construct. And only polling provides people with that information about how to best get the government that they want at the end of the day. 
Yeah, the letters I've had on that and this issue of strategic voting has been the argument to me is don't vote at all. My party's not going to win. I really wanted them to win, and they're not going to win. And I, I'm not interested in strategic voting, so I'm just not going to vote. Well, I mean, polling well, they all... Will. Yeah. They will. I'll just tell you what. Whatever the last polls... But sorry. Whatever the polls a week before Election Day say the NDP are at, they'll get 2 or 3% less than that. That's uh, History has shown us that. They're going to go liberal to defeat the Conservatives. If Yeah, only if the Conservatives are looking like win. they could win. Yeah. And and right. what I would yeah. uh, what I would say about that is how much of that is people reacting to polling and then how much of that is people reacting to what their their leadership is telling them. So so the 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 the, the caveat to that is someone like Elizabeth May who whatever she ends up doing in this campaign uh, has managed at least this time around to say a vote for my party is not by necessity a thrown away vote because I've been able to show that we got a couple on base in British Columbia. We got a whole bunch on base in New Brunswick. Hey, we even got one in Ontario. I won my seat. If you vote your conscience, maybe just maybe you'll get what you want, which has been an interesting antidote to the whole strategic voting thing. So that's not maybe, again but at to the end say of the day, voters are still going to have to say, there's one federal party on offer with a climate plan, one federal party that doesn't care about climate change, and so I could vote green or I could make sure that Ed Shear is not the prime minister. Well, and for climate-motivated climate voters, that's going to be an interesting dilemma. And for climate-motivated voters, they're going to, I mean, look, now, now, we're, now, now we're talking like we are Elizabeth May and Justin Trudeau, yeah, but, you know, yeah, so let's, let's not let, do let, that. Let's, but. Stay, let, let's just stay on polling and not slide into the politics of of what we're witnessing unfold here. Um, because that's an interesting discussion too, and we can maybe have that at a later date. It's polling related. It, yeah. <laughs> sure I mean, is. isn't everything? <laughs> he says carefully. Uh, Bethany Collicut uh, writes this question. I've been polled many times, but only on my landline. Many times? Like, I've never been polled. I, I think there have been an attempts to poll, but I haven't looked it up. She really likes talking to pollsters. But anyway, that's not her question. With today's trend of younger Canadians only having cell phones, how do you make sure that your poll sample is representative of the population? Assuming, of course, that most elderly people or older people are still using landlines. How do you make sure? So there's, again, there's a whole bunch of things in terms of sampling and sampling needs to always be evolving. So it's not just a matter of talking to people on a cell phone anymore, because what we're finding and, and what some of the, the research is showing on this issue is people now don't want to talk as much. So if you're trying to reach a young person on their cell phone, it's not going to be, hey, I'm David and I want to talk to you. And they're like, yeah, click. It's uh, a text message may pop up. I mean, we all kind of chuckled about Sarah from the Conservative Party who wanted to know, you know, press, will, will you just, can you text back yes or no if you're going to be voting for us? But text-based uh, interviewing is going to be and is already starting to be the next thing. Uh, Facebook Messenger-based uh, interviewing is going to be the next thing. The questions around all of that as practitioners is how do you put up the checks and balances to make sure you're not talking to a bot in Russia? How do you make sure you're talking to a real person? But 
it always has to be evolving around where do you find people where they are in the medium in which they actually want to correspond with you. So the most egregious problems here, and it's a problem, the most egregious problems here are with the IVR or robocall yeah, polling. I would um, agree. Because uh, young people will not talk to the robot. Um, and so they don't answer those surveys. And so what all polling companies do when they get their raw data in is they weight that data up against Canadian census data so that it is reflective of Canadian census data. It is generally assumed when you do that that you're not doing very much weighting. You may have a few cases over in the 40 to 50 category and a few cases under in the 29 to 40 category, and you're sort of just adjusting that. But what happens with IVR is you can do a 600-person sample and have five people under the age of 30. Okay? That's supposed to be 150 people. So then you take that five people and you weight it up so that it represents 150 people, and then you've got Nahid Nenshi losing badly. Calgary. And you're pumping up tires. Okay. What happens with the less, you know, it's like it's it's right. molecules. You've got just fewer atoms floating around in that tire. And that is what happened in Calgary, right? Yep. It's assumed. Um, all right. Uh, here's another one. Paul, or sorry, David Clark. Or no, wait a minute. It's Paul Clark writing from David Clark's account. Well, there you go. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know what, how we're going to pull you, Paul. <laughs> um, do the pollsters use any factors to account for the 30% of eligible voters who do not vote? Or do they assume the non-voters are distributed in the exact same ratios as the responses from their sample population? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, uh, the allocated, the undecided are always allocated proportionally to what the answers have been. And so that's how... When you, see an, when you see something that says the Liberals are at 34 and the Conservatives are 33 or whatever it is today, vice versa, right? They weren't at those numbers. Those are numbers now add up to 100, but there would have been, say, 15% undecided, don't, won't say. Oh, you're talking these, about the netting out of the undecided. That's exactly right. Yeah. So but are we assuming the undecided are the same as the do not vote? No. Oh, His question is about the 30% don't vote. Right. I mean, usually, you know, our turnout rates. So there's there's questions you ask. And and again, they're not and and they're asked in a way that is not meant to ascribe judgment. But realizing everyone's busy, you know, do you think you're going to to cast a ballot in in this campaign? Are you going to get around to it? Because, you know, voting's a hassle. You might ask people if they know where their polling station is. You might ask them about their voting history. What was the last election you remember voting in? You might ask them what the day of the the election is and if they can tell you it's anywhere near October 21st chances are you have someone who's probably a little more vote intentional than someone who actually can't answer that question so there's ways to understand what you're dealing with now the difference between the undecideds and the will not votes the closer you get, realistically speaking, the closer you get to an election, if you're still dealing with somebody who says, I don't know who I'm going to vote for 48 hours before an election, chances are just based on what history tells us, they will not vote. But to your to, to the to the questioner's point, you're dealing with two different things. There's people with, who are non-voters, and then there's people who are still in that pool of, I might change my mind. The later you get in a campaign, they tend to kind of merge and become the same person. This is a, I, I was just a slightly different view. 
Okay. Which I have a slightly different view, which is I, I've spent sort of 20 years trying to figure this out um, through various elections because nothing would be more valuable and nothing is more of a problem for the polling industry predicting elections than to model the electorate. And if you could actually model that 60% or 65% that's going to come out, and I've tried all the questions that you are suggesting, and there's n correlations are pretty weak on all of them. And the reality is that the only thing that's a really valid indicator of whether you're going to vote in the next election is whether you voted in the last one. The Americans have that data. We do not have that data at our disposal. So we don't know. So the Americans can model likely voters based on past voters. If a Canadian pollster has a likely voter screen, they're making it up, and it's art and science mixed together. There's a lot of waiting and a lot of They're trying to, they're trying of to figure something out. I'm saying I haven't in 20 years found a good model for that, for, re, for really doing that. So I, I, I think it's very, very hard, and the problem is people give you socially correct responses. If you ask people if they intend to vote in the election, somewhere between 80 and 90% will say yes. Well, that's that's why you add caveats. I know you don't want to spend forever on this. I think that can, you can have a sense of indication. Is it a magic bullet? No, there, there are no magic bullets. And what continues to bedevil us in terms of, of polling and, and election outcomes is not measuring the pie. I think everyone's pretty good at slicing up the pie and figuring out how big the pieces are relative to the parties. It's the size of the pie. It's the who's going to show up. And young voters, voters under the age of 35, continue to be the X factor. And so I feel sometimes like we spend too much time talking about the numbers and not talking about the turnout dynamics. If you have fewer voters, we were talking earlier about those who are just going to stay home. Staying home only ever benefits in, in the last several elections, has only ever benefited the Conservative Party. It's how Stephen Harper won three elections in a row, albeit two of the more minorities. Uh, if you have large voter turnout, as we saw in 2015, which was a high watermark for both voters 18, uh, aged 18 to 24 and 24 to 35, the proportionality of their voter participation went up 18 points in one case and 12 points in the other. They were there. The big question is, are they turned off and feeling cynical and going to stay home? Or are they going to show up again because they're exercised by issues such as affordability and climate change? These, I, I feel like as, as pollsters, as an industry, as part of this discussion, we don't spend enough time talking about how turnout affects results. Okay. I think we take that message and remember it. Hmm. Because it does. It obviously does. Uh, you know, and I can remember when I started in this business when uh, you two were not even born, um, you know, our turnouts were in the high 70s. You know I'm 57 years old, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> 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 Unfortunately, I do. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, our turnouts used to be in the high 70s. Which sounds great now. I mean, it's low compared with some other areas, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, do pretty well. Um, but, you know, we were in the 50s two elections ago. Last one, last big one was 88. Yep. Yeah, and that was because we had a very focused debate, right, yep. around free trade. We could have had a focused debate here. Maybe it'll still become one around climate change. Could be. Could be around health care. Um, you know, there's a number of things that it could be around. 
Why did but he, at the moment, it is nothing compared with 88. You, me, you were both there in 88. i sorry to do this, but I want to know how it is that we actually managed to get to a single ballot question in 88. That is a remarkable thing because parties debate. parties are trying to settle a, a ballot the, question. Yeah. It was the debate. It was the, the debate. debate it, it wasn't the ballot question before that. Mulroney didn't want it to be the ballot question. No. Broadbent didn't want it to be the ballot question. Right. Only Turner wanted it to be the ballot question, and up until the debate, it was not the ballot question. And it that became worked the really ballot, well for him. Yeah. It became the ballot question because of one very simple ad and one dynamite exchange. The erased border. A, the erased border. Yeah. Everybody could figure that out, right? Yeah. You know, true or not, they could figure it out. Um, and there was a great exchange of, of between Turner and uh, Mulrooney, which was, uh, you know, the flip side of the the exchange they had in '84 sold us out. Yeah, right. Exactly, and it, you know that that engaged everybody, and suddenly that became the uh, the debate for the last couple of weeks. And the fact that it was the ballot question, in a sense, and Alan Gregg again was you know bombed the bridge yeah. on, in terms of uh, 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 of the campaign strategy for the final couple of weeks because the conservatives were in chaos after that debate. It's a great story, by the way. People, this is such a, a part of political history, but nobody, I don't think, really necessarily remembers what it means. Bomb the bridge, which was Alan Gregg's pithy advice to the conservative campaign, was there is growing antipathy toward free trade, right? And there is growing support for the Liberal Party. And the link between those two things is John Turner. And if you blow up John Turner, you will blow up the link between anti-free trade and liberal votes. And so they went after, they didn't try to defend free trade in the last two weeks. They went after Turner, mm. right? Turner was the bridge between free trade and right. liberal. Which, which was amazing because in the first half of the campaign, the liberals actually tried to dump him in the middle of the campaign. Oh, that I remember. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then suddenly in the, the back half of the campaign, he was their greatest strength. Um, Mulroney, uh, or sorry, Turner, while he was being attacked, could have opened up a second front, and he didn't. GST. GST. It was just sitting there. Yeah. Nobody was talking about it. It was coming in on on uh, January first of the following year, yeah. and he didn't. He, yeah. You know, it was just it was just sitting there. Anyway, I can see you've been well briefed by Michael Kirby. No. It was, <laughs> hey, listen, I remember that campaign really well. And, uh, you know, 84 as well. I mean, they're, they're, those were classic campaigns. They were, so they were two of the great campaigns. To bring it back to 2019, what we don't have is leadership or strategists or an electorate that's either prepared to buy in to the attempts by the parties to frame ballot questions okay. or we're, the ability to define ballot questions. We're talking about polling. Oh. But it's a good point, and we, you know, and and we should <laughs> maybe discuss at some point. But it, we we've already gone. <laughs> That's your polite way of telling us. To Forty-six show minutes here, which is great. Five this is the new the longest ever bridge. You so really? we, we we've set new records here, but well, we actually still have some questions to ask. Content, content, content. So, okay, lightning round. <laughs> the lightning round, exactly. Um, Valerie Cormier. Uh, she lives two blocks from English Bay. Isn't she lucky? What do you consider this is a going to be about tankers? <laughs> <laughs> no, no tankers in this in these questions. What do you consider a fair cross section of the population, and how do you attempt to achieve this in your polling? I feel like 
we touched on that. We have touched on it. Yeah. So we're looking for the one sentence answer. You're looking for ultimately a sample that almost perfectly mirrors the Canadian population. You're looking census for mini Canada. You're looking right. for mini Canada. And it's based on the census based data. Based on the census yeah. data. Okay. Yeah. What method do you depend on? Well, we kind of did this too. In this century, you know, phone, in person, internet, we've, we've kind of gone there. Um, this is good. More details about how and where you find poll participants. So I talked a little bit about recruiting. Um, so people, ultimately it comes down to not just talking to people, but pe talking to people who want to talk to you, who want to take five or 10 or however many minutes out of their day. And best practice is really you don't want to go much longer than 10 to 15 minutes max. You're going to lose them after that. So the best way to go about it is, again, when people write to me and go, how do I sign up for your polls? Why did nobody ask me? Those aren't necessarily the people we want to talk to. We don't not want to talk to them, but that's not going to help us with our blind spots. But how so do you find those people you, that you, are going to help you? We Well, methodologies are all different. Well, we online, find them there's online. There's advertising. Some people recruit them by phone. Yeah. Some people advertise to get them in. They're paid incentive, right? The Okay, you want to talk about incentives? Yes, there is an incentive. The incentive in many cases is 25 cents, 50 cents. Uh, some people, some uh, uh, online panels will deal in points. You've got to collect so many points. The idea people of the incentive... People will talk to you for 25 cents? People, because they no, want... No, they're not to, talking to you. They're filling in the survey while they're watching television. Uh, they are they are talking to you. They are filling in a survey. They are responding to a questionnaire because they want to have their say. If at some point they have earned enough points to get their chapters gift card or their Amazon gift card, don't mute. But the idea of, oh, well, we're all susceptible in the online world to professional pollsters who are watching soap operas all day and, and therefore, you know, yeah, David's giving me the look, you know. I, <laughs> I stand, look, look at our track record. I stand by what Sorry, we no, do no, and how we find I, them. I'm not attacking your yeah. business. I really am not. I'm just going to say, in, to, to, the, to the questioner, in the traditional method of a telephone survey, you will have banks and banks of people sitting at computer terminals with a headset on and the computer will be randomly generating phone numbers. It's called random digit dialing. Yeah. And so it's not coming from a phone book anymore. It's not coming from a list. The computer is randomly generating a Canadian telephone number. So you have no idea who you're going to No idea who you're going to talk to. But what's interesting about telephone polling and what does make it, again, a little different from the other methods is that since you are looking for a specific person, now you've randomly, we talked earlier about that random possibility of being surveyed. You've picked up a person, a good tell a good company doing telephone interviewing will try over the course of a week, seven or eight times at different times of the day to get that person to answer the survey before they move on to somebody else. And the other the other methods don't have that same rigor of finding who exactly were we supposed to be talking to? You can survey. well, you can deploy in an online world, which is the other main world where you're doing it, where you have a, a set of profiling questions that you've asked the person who's opting in. Who, who And by the way, let's opting in is simply saying, I'm going to give you my name, maybe my cell number, maybe my email address. And at some point, I accept that if you try to contact me in the in the era of privacy laws and the way that works, that yes, I've, I've given you my permission to give me a call or to reach out to me via email and, and ask me some questions in a poll. We will then try to find out, okay, well, how old are you? 
What part of the country do you live in? Maybe what are some of your interests? Maybe what's your ethnic background or what what languages do you speak at home? So we have a sense, again, of some of these census marks that we're trying to hit. And then we will randomly, within that online sample, deploy to a group that Right, so like if I hired you, yeah. if I hired you yeah. to do a survey, you yeah. wouldn't send out the invitation to your entire panel. No. No. You no. would send it out to a portion there of the panel. There is a randomization of the portion of that panel that we know represents, again, that mini Canada by census. And then if you've got shortfalls because people haven't responded or because you've got shortfalls elsewhere, again, uh, you are then going to say, well, we're, let's release another tranche of sample. Ideally, that's, again, a very small amount to find that 18 to 34-year-old gamer in Sudbury that you just really need to make sure that your sample is, is watertight. And in fairness to these methodologies, there are other issues. And, and one of them should be clear about is the cost and speed. Okay? So to do a survey of 1,500, American, uh, 1500 Canadians, national, probably has, if you do it online, probably has, I'm not, I don't know what your pricing is, probably has hard costs of less than $5,000 associated with doing that survey. For a sample size of what? $1,500. Uh, pure cost per complete. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's, that's in the ballpark. Okay, by telephone, $60,000. Whoa. $60,000. And... By telephone, will take you 10 days to complete that survey. Online, you'll have the results in two days. Well, so is the temptation, yes. tem yes. temptation, obviously, then is online, yeah. faster, cheaper. Yeah. And cheaper, again, we may disagree on this. Cheaper isn't necessarily worse. There are going to be specialized situations, and I talked about this. If you right. need to understand what's going on in 300 households in a very specific quadrant of a neighborhood in a city, do two things. Knock on doors yourself or uh, hire David. But if you want a snapshot of what's going on in a region, in a province, across the country, you can get pretty good results by going online. And we're not the only online practitioners out there. Okay, here's the last one from, uh, uh, from a uh, listener. This is from Ken Polk in uh, Brockville, Ontario. He sent a number in. And just I know of, Ken Polk. You do? Do you I, really? If it's the Ken Polk, I know. He worked on our 2004 election campaign. Well, I think, work, I think you got to throw Mr. that question out. for Mr. So, Petchan, I believe. So you fixed this then? I did. I fixed all you these You phoned things. Ken. Where's the yeah. question from Angus? <laughs> Why aren't you reading the question from Angus? <laughs> Where is Angus? Is he, he's in some Central American... Uh, Exotic place. He's lying in the on office the beach today. I just talked <laughs> to him. Um, <laughs> he said not to say hi. No, I'm kidding. He said say hi to you both. Well, know him or not, this Ken Polk in, in Brockville, Ontario, it's a good question. Um, any sense of where millennials are in terms of likely voting? There seems to be a sharp demographic distinction on where voters stand on climate change, for instance. Where's on this millennial vote? I mean, the on thing about millennials, it's 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 such a big bracket, right? What is it? What do we actually count? That's, that's a very good point. Well, actually, they're getting older, David. Yeah. Right? They're about it's to turn like 40. 40 or under. Yeah. So when we, we're now referring to millennials, but in our heads, and I see this a lot, is what we're really talking about is the 20-somethings. 
And that's more like the iGen or Gen Y or whatever we're calling them. Millennials are hitting middle age, just like the boomers are all doing their... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a nice way out of that sentence. They're, they're, they're going... Most seniors they're, are now boomers. They're That's aging right. like fine wine. They are. Yes. They are. Um, but what we do see, and I, I think, I think uh, we see it regardless of methodology, is some real generational lines being driven on a lot of questions. So whether that's climate change, uh, whether that is even the way Canadians reacted to the blackface scandal, uh, young progressive people were far more likely to be outraged, disturbed, Older people, people over the age of 40, 45, it's not like anybody was condoning it, going, yes, blackface is good. But there was a much higher rate of uh, the shrug factor or what's the big deal. And where this really came to play in the, in the data that we looked at was actually among visible minorities themselves. Visible minorities under the age of 35, furious. Their parents were more like, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't find an apartment. People used to, you know, push me off the sidewalk or, or do terrible things. This is not the worst thing to happen. So generationally, when we look at values, it's not just the issues of the day. Patriotism. Canadians over 40 much more likely to claim a strong sense of, of connection to their country than Canadians under the age of 40 who have been uh, raised in a really globalized internet era environment. You look at the notion of family. Canadians over 35, 40, your family is your family. You get what you get. Younger Canadians know you can pick your family. That applies to their views of marriage, same-sex marriage, LGBTQ2 rights, the economy, innovation, you name it. We are in this period in this country today where the generations really are uh, coming apart in a very cavernous way. Last question goes to you, David, and it's actually a repeat of, of the first question that went to you about this um, the most un misunderstood part. Because what I found um, especially interesting about that was this difference between what the public polls are, are trying to determine right. versus what the political, the party polls are. Because the, the polls that can have the greatest impact, one assumes, on this election are not the ones we read about in the paper or hear about on television. Right. There are these ones that the parties are taking. So tell me the kind of, once again, the kind of things that the parties are asking. What are they looking for in their polling? And I assume this is nightly polling. I also assume it's, it's not national. It's not like everywhere. It's in particular writings that could, could have an impact on the vote on October 21st that, right. that are the ones that they see as potential for victory or potential for defeat, and they're trying to understand why. Yeah, I don't want to get too much into that. There's a million different approaches to that. Some people, when they're polling for elections, poll a bunch of different swing ridings to get a sense of that. Other people, which is what I always did, is poll the entire jurisdiction and apply those results to a seat model to see how things move. So there's a bunch of different ways of doing that. But I think you should think of, you raised the question of, of questionnaires earlier. You think you should think of it in terms of the questionnaire. So if you see a poll in the media, it, will tell, it may tell you that Justin Trudeau's uh, favorability ratings are up or down or choice for best prime minister is up or down. Why? So that's what the parties will know. Parties will know, liberals will be testing for, uh, the conservatives are calling him a phony. Is that rising? 
right? Conservatives are saying he's not as advertised. The NDP say he can't be trusted. Which of those things is moving? And which of those things is correlated to the reduction in his support? So therefore, what do we need to be positioning against? What do we need to be balancing against? To go back to the strategic voting, one of the questions I always asked people was, if you had to choose, would you rather have a liberal government or a conservative government? And so 75% of NDP voters would say, I'd rather have a liberal government than an NDP government. And then I will say to those people, is it more important to you to not have a conservative government or to elect an NDP member? And then I know who's really vulnerable to me in that NDP cohort, right? They want a liberal government and it's more important to them than electing a new Democrat. So what do those people care about? What do I need to say to those people in the last week? Other questions like second choice. 2015 was really remarkable because what we realized even when the Liberals were in third place was they were everyone's consensus candidate. They were the second choice of both New Democrats and Conservatives. You know you might be onto something there. So it's a, again, it's about getting beyond the horse race numbers. And whether that's a party poll or whether that's just a well-constructed public poll, it should always go further than who do you plan right. to vote for on October 21st. But what you're you're also saying is that when we watch a leader give their newser or their speech or whatever. Research tested to within an inch of its life. Right. First and of could, all, could strategically driven by quantitative surveys, detailed language driven by focus groups. Nothing, nothing impromptu about that. They're not talking about it unless they know exactly who they're going to win and who they can potentially lose. And that's okay. They've already calibrated for that. So they're constantly focus grouping speeches as they're taking place, real time focus groups. Absolutely. Well, they will. They will be doing some of that for sure. I'm sure they'll be doing that for the debates. Right. right? But they have got messages, right? That they have researched to know exactly not just the kind of thing you need to be saying. I'm talking about the research gets down to how do you construct this sentence? What words go in? What words go out? What do you emphasize? What do you not emphasize? And don't say it any other way. Don't get experimental about this. Say it that way over and over and over again. Because when you get tired of saying it, people have just started to hear it. <laughs> this has been fascinating. Uh, as I fully expected, Shachi and David has been great. And uh, there's a little, uh, I was going to say politics 101 course there. That it's actually like politics 401. Uh, it's really been good. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, for thanks for having me on. Yeah, honored, thanks for having honored us. Honored to be on the bridge and great to see what your next venture is. Well, I look forward to my next appearance on the Hurley Burley. Yeah, me well, too. you know what? You can all both come on the Hurley Burley. I'd be delighted. But I will say one thing, right? If this is Peter's source of income, <laughs> the next time we're on this thing, yeah. it's not going to be at the Shangri-La. <laughs> <laughs> All I right, gotta, you look, I, you know, he, he gave you a nice can of Bud Light. I'm finishing off a nice, you know, glass of, of, of white well, wine. Right. It's all good. how lucrative these podcasts are. Oh, goodness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is well, where you want to Well, if you retire. like to be paid in likes, David, you're a winner. <laughs> Thank you both. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. It was uh, different and <laughs> it was long. That's the longest bridge on record. Uh, we'll see whether we can beat that in the days ahead. 
if you have some thoughts on what you've heard over the last hour, I consider it really, as I suggested there, a kind of master class uh, in the art of polling and raising the issues that surround polling. And I thought both Shachi and David were very honest and straightforward in their answers about how they handle some of those questions. And I think I learned a lot, and as somebody who's been covering uh, politics for almost 50 years and polling for most of that time, uh, I learned a lot in, in those discussions. So uh, I hope you did as well. Anyway, if you have thoughts, give me uh, drop me a line at themansbridgepodcast at gmail.com. That's themansbridgepodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back tomorrow night with a regular version of The Bridge. Hope you've enjoyed today. 